Amen. Let's bow and pray as we come to hear God's Word. Father in heaven, we come this morning as your people who are in need of your Word. We're in need of counsel and wisdom and correction and protection, and so we ask that you would supply us with faith as we hear your Word this morning. We pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that you'd bring fruit from what we hear. Lord, I thank you for the honor it is to preach your Word, and I pray that you would help me to preach joyfully and faithfully and clearly that your Son Jesus would be exalted, that we would be reminded of your deep love and kindness and grace to us in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, how do you know that you're a Christian? We live in a nation, and particularly even in a region of our nation, where so many people would consider themselves to be Christians. The, the Pew Research Center noted in a, a recent study that only a few decades ago, a Christian identity was so common amongst Americans that could almost be taken for granted. Now, I grew up in the 1990s, a wonderful decade, and I remember that. There was lots of people. Most people would call themselves a Christian. They record in their statistics as early as the 1990s, about a 90% of U.S. adults would call themselves a Christian. And even with changes in our country, with more people considering themselves to be religiously unaffiliated and different religions being represented in our country, even with those shifts, the Pew Research Center recently estimated in 2020 that about 64% of Americans, including children, call themselves Christians. Which I think begs the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? I mean, in other words, a lot of people in our society call themselves Christians, but think about that. On your way to church this morning, what percentage of people in your neighborhood were preparing to go worship God in church? Now, hear me correctly. I am not saying that going to church makes you a Christian. It certainly does not. But Christians go to church, and they worship God. They praise Him for what He's done in Jesus. Was 64% of your neighborhood preparing to go worship God this morning? What about in your office? Maybe 64% of people celebrate Christmas and just had an office Christmas party last month, but are 64% of your office, are they genuinely converted? Do they know Jesus? 64% of your extended family. I'm sure they may have gathered just a month ago for Christmas family gatherings. But are 64% of your family, do they have genuine faith in Jesus? Again, it begs the question, what is a Christian? How do you know if you are a Christian? Is it simply because you celebrate Christmas and Easter is it merely because you have attended or may sometimes attend the local church? Is it because you were sprinkled as an infant? Is it because you prayed a prayer as a child and asked Jesus into your heart? How can you know that you're a Christian? Well, as we begin our study in the book of 1 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul, he's thanking God for a particular church. And if you look at his language here, he's confident that they're genuinely converted, that they're sincere Christians. In fact, he says that he knows they are Christians. Well, how could he know? How can you know if you're a Christian? Well, the Apostle Paul points to the genuine Christian faith, to a genuine Christian faith, being displayed through the evidence of salvation and to an example in their lives 
being displayed. Well, this is our 18th book of the Bible that we've been going through since we have replanted here in 2015. Uh, Some of you have been here for all 17 of those books, and you're here for number 18 now. Now, we've been through other things, topical studies. We've been in portions of the Psalms and portions of the Gospel of Matthew, the parables and the Sermon on the Mount. So there's lots of other things we've done. But in terms of going through complete books of the Bible, this is number 18. We think it's a good thing that if you commit yourself to coming to church, especially if you've been coming the last seven years, that that should result in you knowing the Bible more, knowing what's there, knowing what God has said, and how to apply that to your lives as Christians. And so may the Lord bless this study in the New Testament book, 1 Thessalonians. I hope years from now, if the Lord tarries, we'll look back and remember when we went through the book of 1 Thessalonians together, and that God would use that in our lives to bring much fruit. Go ahead and turn with me now to the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians in the New Testament. If you want to use that pew Bible right in front of you, take that pew Bible and you can open up to page 986. Page 986 in the pew Bible. And if you've come this morning and you don't own a Bible, then we want to give that to you. Take it home, use it, read it, connect with someone here who could help you read the Bible. We're going to be in verses 1 through 10 this morning. And a little bit of context, since we are in a new book of the Bible, this is a letter. You may even see the, the heading there, the first letter of Paul to the Thessalonians. That's why we call it First Thessalonians. And the, the way that you and I write letters today, even though writing letters is becoming kind of a lost art, we text message, we do all sorts of, we DM, right? But writing letters, if we take the time to do it, which is a good thing to do, uh, the form typically is a, a greeting, dear so-and-so, followed by the main body of whatever is writing. And then we close with, with something like sincerely or best, or if you want to sound really spiritual, like in him, and then you kind of like sign your name. Right? That's kind of how we write notes and letters. But we see here in verse 1 that the typical formula for ancient letters uh, didn't follow this same pattern. It was somewhat different. These letters, they begin with the sender. We see there in verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, Timothy. It's followed by the recipients. So verse 1 continues, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then a greeting, grace to you and peace. So this letter, it's written by the Apostle Paul. He lists two co-workers there in the gospel. Silvanus is just the Latin form of Silas. So this is Paul, his co-worker Silas. And then you see Timothy, his most notable disciple there. They are co-workers with the Apostle Paul. The recipients of this letter, the church of the Thessalonians. That word church meaning an assembly. He was writing to an actual local church, an assembly of, of baptized believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. They would meet on the the Lord's Day, certainly other times during the week, but on the Lord's Day, Sunday morning, to worship the Lord together, to encourage one another under the leadership of elders, hearing God's Word preached, taking the Lord's Supper together. They were a church, an actual church that Paul was writing to. Now, you can read about how this church came to be back in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. Paul, on his second missionary journey, he visited the city of Thessalonica. Now, Thessalonica was an important city, a capital city there in a region called Macedonia. Around 100,000 people lived in Thessalonica at that time. So it was a large city, a, a bustling area. It was right there on a harbor, so there was lots of trade that went through there. And Paul visited Thessalonica, and for three consecutive Saturdays, which was the Jewish Sabbath, he preached in the synagogues. 
And as a Jew, he went to the Jewish synagogues and he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God who came down from heaven, fully God and fully man, that Jesus died on the cross to pay for sin. He preached the resurrection of Jesus, that on the third day God raised him from the dead. And he called that group of people there to repent of their sin, to turn away from Jesus, which is how you become a Christian. Repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. The result was kind of mixed. Uh, In one part, there was those who received the Word, which is a normal pattern we see. Where God's Word is preached, it is received. It may take time. It may not be received by many. But the normal pattern, the reason you and I are sitting here this morning as Christians, is the Word of God got preached to us. It was received by God's grace. We're Christians. But also it's a normal pattern that the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ comes with affliction. So we see there were a a good number of of Greeks and some Jews that came to believe in Jesus, that a church was planted there. But we also see persecution came. You can read about that in Acts chapter 17, verses 5 through 9. A group of Jewish leaders formed a mob. A riot started. It was such a threatening situation that the Apostle Paul and Silas had to escape by night. There were times they stayed and suffered and endured persecution. There were other times wisely that they fled, that they might continue to preach the gospel. And that's why we have this letter. So the apostle Paul, he had to flee. He had to leave. He was hindered from going back to this place where they would certainly be imprisoned and possibly killed. So he sent Timothy, his disciple, to Thessalonica to check up on them. Timothy came back with a good report, and then Paul sends this letter, his first letter, to the Thessalonians responding to this good report he heard about how this local church was doing. And you and I get to read that letter today. It's contained in Holy Scripture as God's Word. And we get to learn from that letter today that we might be encouraged and instructed in our faith, just as the Apostle Paul was seeking to encourage and to instruct this young church there in Thessalonica. Well, let's look at the beginning of this letter from the Apostle Paul to the church of the Thessalonians. And as we do, I want to give you the main idea of this sermon. If you're taking notes, the main idea is this. Our Christian witness is displayed through evidence of salvation and an example of faith. Our Christian witness is displayed through evidence of salvation and an example of faith. As we look at this passage, we'll split that main idea up into two parts. In verses 2 through 5, we see the evidence of salvation. Verses 2 through 5, the evidence of salvation. Now, the main reason that Paul's writing to the Thessalonians is to thank God and to praise Him for the salvation of these Thessalonians. By by God's grace, this group of Christians, this assembly, they're growing and they are maturing in their faith. And as they get to hear what the Apostle Paul is thanking God for in their lives, it would serve as an encouragement to them. Wow, he's thanking God for what he sees in our life. Okay, wow, like how do we know we're Christians? Well, the Apostle Paul is affirming he's seeing evidence of good fruit in our lives. Right off the bat in verse 2, Paul gives a prayer report of what he and Silas and Timothy are thanking God for in the lives of the Thessalonians. And this report is full of thanksgiving that he thanks God as he constantly mentions them in prayer. He says, we give thanks to God always 
for all of you, constantly remembering you in our prayers. You know, when you hear that, you realize prayer was a central part of the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And so it should be for our local church. I mean, we want that to be true in our gatherings, that prayer is not just a transition for musicians to kind of get up and down the stage without being detected. It's not a good way to view prayer in a church service. Right? That it's a central part of our ministry, that, that Pastor Tim led us in thanking God this morning. What a model of how you and I can pray throughout the week to thank God. The pastoral prayer is just a chance for us to say, hey, here's so many different concerns we can lift up to our God and King in the name of Jesus. And that's what that pastoral prayer uh, serves. So it's a ministry and an example to us. Prayer was a central part of Paul's ministry. It should be a central part of ours. Notice he prayed for all of the church. And one of the ways that our elders seek to follow that example is that we pray for all of the church. So every elders meeting, uh, every staff meeting we have throughout the week, we take that church directory. If you are not on the app yet, please heed Pastor Jonathan Morgan's uh, request to his constant request to get on it. And uh, if you want to put your children, if you haven't put your children in there, if you put their names in there, we pray through all their names too, but we use that directory. We go through a letter of the alphabet. Some of you have received recently a, an email as we prepare for an elders meeting. Hey, we're going to pray through the letter B tonight. And if you want to send some prayer requests, we will pray for those different requests. So we try to make our way through the church directory. We do that on Sunday mornings in the pastoral prayer. We do that when we get together. We want to pray for all of us that God would work in our lives. Now, notice also that when Apostle Paul prayed, he gave thanks Certainly, we come to ask God things. We should not be shy in asking God. He is pleased when we come and boldly present requests before His throne. But thanksgiving should also be a regular part of our prayers. Paul and his co-workers, they regularly thanked God for what He was doing in the lives of the Thessalonians. They weren't there with that church physically, but God was, and God was bringing about fruit, and they were thanking God and identifying evidence of His grace. So, so giving thanks was a primary part of the Apostle Paul's prayer life, and it should be a primary part of our prayer lives as well. But what did you thank God for in prayer this past week? How often might this week you plan to pause and to pray and thank God? When we do that, it will change our perspective. We struggle so often to be envious of what God's given to others and overlook what God has given to us. And that exercise of, of giving thanks often results in a thankful heart, meaning that thanksgiving oftentimes is a work God does in us. We come to give thanks so that we might be transformed to be more thankful people. Well, I wonder how you and I might be changed by prayerfully reflecting on what we can thank God for in our lives, you know, particularly as it pertains to praying for this church, because that's what we see happening in this first chapter. What are things you can pray and thank God for that you see in the life of this church and other members? Yeah, I say this to our elders. Let's give ourselves more elders to praying and thanking God for what He's doing in this church. Daniel and Tim and Jonathan. Let's thank God more for what we see in this church. To myself, to Chad, to Johnny, to Peter, how might you pray and thank God more for what we see Him doing in the lives of our church? 
pastors and elders, we can get discontent in our church too. We can wish God was doing more. We can get discouraged. How might the Lord change us as we pause and pray and give Him thanks? That's what we see the Apostle Paul doing. Well, throughout the first chapter of this letter, Paul identifies evidence of God's grace. That's what you do in Thanksgiving. You're identifying evidence, things you see produced by God's grace and the power of His Holy Spirit. So throughout this first chapter of this letter, that's what Paul is doing. Visible fruit is seen there in the lives of these Christians. And here in the beginning, there are two main pieces of evidence of what Paul thanks God for, one in verse 3 and the second in verse 4. In verse 3, we see the first piece of evidence of their faith. They're growing in grace. So he says in verse 3, you are growing in grace. He lists out three virtues, faith, love, and hope. That's a familiar kind of triad that the Apostle Paul uses. The Christian life is a life of faith and hope and of love, but don't disconnect those virtues from the activities we see listed, because there's a second triad there. Work, labor, steadfastness. It's how these kind of invisible things come to be seen visible. Faith, love, and hope start inside of you. The power of the Holy Spirit, and they're visibly seen through your work, through your labor, and through steadfastness. In other words, Faith, genuine faith, it leads to work, meaning good works, serving the Lord, obeying Scripture. Love leads to labor, labor prompted by a love for God and a love for others. You see, Martin Luther, you may remember this quote, famous quote, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Meaning genuine faith is always accompanied by good works, labor that is prompted by love, true faith, sincere love for God and others is seen as our good works. What that means is that if you're truly saved, you and I, we don't live for ourselves, but rather we labor out of a love for God and for others. And mentioned last here is hope, hope that leads to steadfastness. Steadfastness is endurance, it's perseverance, it's standing firm. It's even the kind of the image we get with a a very familiar mascot here in our state of the North Carolina Tar Heels, right? Tar on your heel in a way where you're standing firm, firmly planted. The, The life of the Christian, we're going to endure suffering, affliction. We will know physical trials, we will know spiritual trials, relational hardship, but hope in God and in His promises, hope in Jesus, it causes us and produces within us steadfastness, meaning by God's grace, we keep going. Isn't that the testimony of Christians in the local church? There are so many testimonies here in the membership of our church of people who've endured hardship, and they keep going. Some here are widows, and they've kept going, enduring hardship and sadness. They kept going. Some of you are having a financially hard time right now. By God's grace, you keep going, and you keep believing God. You keep trusting Him. You keep praising. You keep confessing to Him the ways that you fail at trusting Him, the ways that you're giving in to anxiety. You keep going by the grace of God. 
You see, Christians, by God's grace, remain steadfast. They, they persevere. This is not by the power of self-discipline. This is not by the power of just strong resolve. This is only by the power of hope, meaning it's attached to the promises of God, the truth of His Word, and it's produced by the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Faith, hope, and love, that is the Christian life. Now, I've often heard uh, faith and hope referred to as the left and right hand of God. Right, so, so faith and hope, they kind of help us in the fight in this world. Uh, faith, it fights against unbelief. Unbelief, not believing God's promises. Faith says, I'm going to press through unbelief. The Holy Spirit causing us to trust the promises of God. Hope fights against despair. There's plenty of times where we feel desperate in this world. We feel sad. We feel discouraged. Well, the answer to that by the power of the Holy Spirit is hope to remind us that hope is alive because Jesus is alive. As bad as things may be, meaning that we see the harmful effects of sin in this world around us. Sin rears its ugly face so often and in so many ways. But we can find courage because Jesus, He reigns on the throne this morning. Our Savior was crucified. He's risen. He is reigning, and we find hope that indeed He is one day returning. These trials will come to an end. Our hope in Christ is a Christian has never seen a trial. They will not outlast. And what I mean by that, the last trial you and I will face if Christ doesn't return first is death. And we will all suffer death if Christ doesn't return first. But for those who are in Christ, our hope is we will outlast even death. Christ conquered death when He rose from the dead. We've been united to His victory, if indeed we've put our faith in Jesus Christ and repented of our sin. And so Christians, we aren't just optimistic people. That's not what hope means. It means we are people who are fixed and focused on Jesus Christ. He resurrected from the grave, so we will be when He comes. Amen? We're people of of hope. Faith fights against unbelief. Hope fights against despair. And love is kind of the knockout punch. It's the knockout punch. Loving God and loving others. The Apostle Paul later says, in, or earlier says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the greatest of these is love. Meaning that this love that we know for God in this life and others, it will continue on into the next life. One day faith will be over. We'll behold by sight what we believe now in faith. Hope will have reached its destination. We'll be face to face with Jesus. Love will last forever, meaning we will know God and be enveloped by His love in eternity future. Love is the knockout punch, so to speak, as we seek to grow in love, loving God, loving our neighbor. There's evidence of God's grace that we're growing as Christians. Now, we see the second piece of evidence of their salvation there in verse 4. Paul says he knows they're truly Christians, and he reminds them of the power of their salvation. That's the second piece of evidence. The power of their salvation. Look at verse 4. For we know. Well, how does he know? How can you know if you're a Christian? Well, their faith, their hope, their love, it, it was evidence that God had chosen them. That's what he says there. Look at verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. God chose you. That that word chose refers to the biblical doctrine of election. 
God chose you. Before the foundation of the world, in eternity past, the God of all creation, He chose whom He would save. Now remember, this is in the context of Paul thanking God. He, he thanks God for their election because God alone is the one who is responsible for their salvation. God chose them. Now, I understand this may sound strange to some. You may even think, well, wait a minute. I chose God. And let me be clear. If you're a Christian, no doubt there was a moment that you first came to believe where you repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ. If that's not happened in your life, you are not yet a Christian. And some may say, that, so wait a minute, I, I chose God. But what passages like this teach us is that your choice of God happened because He chose you. You were dead in your sins, blind to the truth. Uh, we had hearts that were hard. Who was it that opened our eyes? How did our, our hearts that were hard to the gospel of Jesus Christ, how did they get softened where we started to be concerned about God and His glory, where we started to see the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ? where He was desirable more than the passing promises of this present world. How did that happen in our lives? There's no other way to explain it besides God chose us. He loved us before we loved Him. Brothers and sisters, this is a wonderful doctrine of comfort. And I understand if it's difficult for you, if you're not there yet, if you're a member of our church, come talk to any of our pastors. We'd love to share with you more about how we understand this, where we see this in God's Word. But I think this be, it brings comfort because it reminds us that our conversion was entirely a work of God's grace. And if we are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that means we are sustained by the grace of God alone. Certainly, we cooperate. We must give ourselves to obedience, to worship. You gave yourself to coming to church this morning. So divine sovereignty, it does not negate human responsibility, but our confidence for the future, our hope that we will finish the race, is not found in our own wisdom and our own knowledge and effort. Rather, we find comfort in the same God who saved us. He will sustain us until the end. It brings me, some people will say, well, how can you believe that and believe in evangelism? I'll tell you how. Because I believe that God has people in this city who have not yet come to know Jesus. And it is the responsibility, and it is the privilege, and it is the honor of every Christian to take the gospel out there. And it gives us confidence. We throw seeds, and God brings the growth. It should lead to more evangelism, not less. It should lead to more prayer, not less. It should lead to us being more engaged in good works, not sitting back on our spiritual recliners as if there's nothing for us to do. The Apostle Paul says, God chose you. Admittedly, it can be difficult to wrap your mind around this, that God chose you before the foundation of the world, which is why you and I need to have our minds shaped by the truth of God's Word and not by human logic. The reason God chooses is not because of any merit in the person. The reason is right there in verse 4, God chooses in love. He says, brothers loved by God. We read a similar thing when we went through the book of Ephesians in chapter 1, verse 4. In love, God, in love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Brother and sister in Christ, you love God because He first loved you. Isn't that amazing grace? 
While Paul has confidence in their faith as Christians because of the evidence of faith, love, and hope in their lives, we see in verse 5 another reason, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Conviction has to do with belief. Conviction speaks to, to an inner confidence, and to hear that confident belief has to do with who Jesus is. Now, hear me correctly. I don't think belief properly explains what conviction is because our beliefs sometimes change over time. There's things maybe you believed in your 20s. You're like, ah, I, I thought differently back then. I, I think differently now. But hear me correctly. Christian conviction, it doesn't change over time to say, well, I believe this about Jesus when I was younger, but now I don't really believe he's fully God, fully man. That's not a Christian conviction. Yeah, a Christian conviction, it's different from a belief that's kind of like a fad. I've heard it put that conviction is not merely a belief that you hold, but rather a belief that holds you, that you're gripped by, a confidence that, that shapes you. There, there are many fads that come and go. My wife and I, one of the fun things we like to do with our high school kids and middle school kids, which they don't like it too much, but we think it's pretty funny to do. Uh, we put 80s songs on sometimes in our house, and we sing 80s songs. They think it sounds so weird. And we talk about the 80s, how awesome they were growing up, going to Pizza Hut on Friday nights, and the different types of things we wear. Now, now if you look at middle school and high school boys now, they're all rocking mullets, which they don't realize that came from the 80s, right? But we, we do those things. And there's kind of 80s fads and trends that are really weird and foreign to them. Well, certainly there can be beliefs that are fads. It's popular to believe this right now. We even see how politicians will change how they view marriage and how they view gender because 10 years ago they didn't view that the same way they do now. Just beliefs that, that change. Christian conviction, it doesn't evolve. Like it. It's not a fad that, that's kind of here one minute and gone the next. It's a conviction that grips you. Jesus is the Son of God. He's truly God and truly man. Our deep conviction is found in the death, His death on the cross as a substitute. We find confidence before God that our sins have been forgiven through His death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead on the third day. This is a conviction that came to us in power by the Holy Spirit of God, meaning that if you're a Christian and you hold that conviction, it's not because you're like one of the really smart people in your family or you're like one of the really smart people here in Charlotte. It's not that this church, we're just really wise and we kind of figured this out and we're the really good people in this city. That's not what it means. It means the Holy Spirit opened up our eyes to see the beauty of Jesus. And our salvation is due solely to His grace. You know, I, I think about the story of conviction. You know, we, we had a funeral here last month. We had a 92-year-old member of our church, Edie Caldwell, who'd been attending as a member here uh, for over 65 years. And to me, that's a testimony of Christian conviction meaning that her profession of faith as a Christian, it was seen displayed for the rest of her life. As she suffered loss, and she suffered even losing her husband and being apart from him for, I think it was 15 years, she walked on in faith, walked on in hope, walked on in love, walked on in joy. And what an example that is to you and me, because that is the normal Christian life. By God's grace, He sustains us to the end. And this conviction that He's given you through the power of the Holy Spirit, it is strengthened and it grows and it transforms us and shapes us over time. It is not just the thing we believed in our 20s and 30s when we were really excited about spiritual things and that we move on to other things. If you're a Christian, you will persevere in 
the faith. The Apostle Paul, how do you know that you're a Christian? There's some some good follow-up questions. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus today? Are you trusting Him today for your salvation? So hear me clearly, it can be normal to have doubts. That's a normal part of the Christian experience. That's, doubt is different from unbelief. And doubts are not to be kind of ridden on and say, we want to embrace this, but they're to be engaged. If you're struggling with doubt, come, come and talk to someone in this church that could help you. Any of our elders would be happy to speak with you. One good question to ask yourself, do you trust in Jesus for your salvation today? Like, do you have that belief? Do you desire to honor and please God? Do you love Him more than you love this present world? You see, genuine Christian faith is seen through this conviction about who God is in Christ, a conviction by the grace of God that He preserves us in for the rest of our lives. Well, in verses 6 through 10, we see the example of faith, the second part of our outline here today, the example of faith. In verse 6, he continues on, Paul's thanking God what he sees in the lives of Thessalonians, and that's why he's continuing to thank God for his work in their lives. He's pointing out, first off, you imitated Jesus and us, and now you've become an example to others. Look at the progression here. It actually starts in the second part of verse 5. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. He's saying that Paul, Silas, Timothy, they set an example for the Thessalonians. Verse 6 begins with the word, and meaning it continues the thought. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Lord there refers to Jesus. Basically what he's saying is you followed us as we followed Jesus. And then down in verse 7, the result, so that you became an example. Now see the pattern here. It's a pattern of discipleship. The heart of Christian discipleship, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the heart of the, the pattern here involves an example to follow. The disciple imitates the teacher and then in turn ends up becoming an example to others. That's how membership in a local church works. We see other members around who are following Jesus. They're setting a good example. Certainly we see in 1 Peter 5 that elders are to be examples for the flock that examples are held up not just among the elders, but members of the church, both young and old. You don't have to be a Christian for 20 years to be an example. Sometimes those new converts in the faith are examples of what it means to be passionate in evangelism. And we need you. We need you young believers. Fire us up again. If we've lost the fire, fire us up again with that passion. It means that we're all to set an example for one another in some way. What we see here, there's a pattern of Christian discipleship. The disciple imitates the teacher and becomes an example for others. So Paul highlights that their example as a church of genuine faith, it's it's seen in three ways. They're joyful in suffering. That's the first way. Verses 6 through 7, he says, you're joyful in suffering. The Thessalonians imitated Paul and Jesus by suffering for the gospel. Verse 6, they received the word in much affliction. Again, I mentioned you can read about this in Acts chapter 17, verses 5 through 9. When the gospel was first preached there, a mob formed a riot against the church, handing over one of the members named Jason, saying, these men are upsetting the world. They are turning the world upside down, handing them over to the civil authorities, trying to hand them over to be flogged and perhaps even killed, just as Jesus was in Jerusalem. 
We see this persecution. It was costly to receive the gospel there in Thessalonica. Their freedom was being threatened. Their very lives being threatened. Yet we read at the end of verse 6, they were joyful in this affliction. How in the world are you joyful when someone's trying to kill you? How are you joyful when somebody's trying to take from you all the security you have for the future? Your livelihood throw you in prison. Now, affliction itself is not a joyful experience. It's not like, oh, if you want to get some joy, go out there and get persecuted. That's, that's not what's being said here. That act is wrong. It's sinful. God will repay those who persecute his people. We see Jesus appearing to Saul on the road to Damascus. Remember what he said to Saul when Saul was going to kill Christians? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute who? Me. Jesus identifies so closely with his people that he said Saul was persecuting Jesus himself. So persecution is not good. It's, it's evil. It's sinful. It's wrong. But God brings something good out of it, is what Paul's saying. He's saying joy and affliction, they go together for the Christian because the Holy Spirit produces joy in your life. There's no other explanation for how you can find joy in affliction for receiving the word other than the Holy Spirit produces this in your life. In other words, the Holy Spirit produces an imitation of Jesus and what we see with the apostles as they suffer. That's why Paul said, you imitated us and the Lord. Consider where we read of Jesus having joy and affliction. The writer of Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 speaks of Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. There was joy before him as he was being treated as a public criminal and mocked and spat upon and crucified and killed. The church there imitated Paul as well. Prior to coming to Thessalonica, you can read in Acts 16 of Paul and Silas being beaten and imprisoned in the next town over, the region, in Philippi. In the midst of their affliction, we read in Acts 16, 25, that Paul and Silas were joyful in affliction. Verse 25 of Acts 16, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now, you and I joyfully sang hymns today in church. They joyfully sang hymns in prison, not sure that they'd get out, not sure that they would live to see much more life. They were joyful in affliction. Paul says the Thessalonians imitated Jesus himself, Silas, and the result there in verse 7, they became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. This word example can also be translated to the word mold. So a mold sets a pattern. That's what an example it, it does. It's a, it's a pattern that can be reproduced. Uh, those of you sitting up there in the balcony, we're glad you're up there. Hope the view is good from up there. We fixed those chairs a number of years ago because there's a bunch of chairs broken in the balcony. Those chairs were installed in 1953, and we had to get a couple rows. We tried to get them repaired, and what they told us was, hey, the parts to repair those chairs no longer exist. They've been obsolete for decades. So we either could have spent a lot of money on ripping the other ones out and putting new chairs in, or we could try to fix those. And what that required was for us to manufacture the parts ourselves. Well, the part didn't exist, so we had to take an old part up there and get a mold. We took that mold, it set a pattern to reproduce the part, and you're sitting in those chairs up there because we got that mold, that pattern to repair those chairs. 
You see, when we think about a, a mold or a pattern, what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that Christians, that they will serve as this example for one another. Godly Christians, they, they serve as this, an example that can be reproduced in the lives of others. And the Thessalonians, they're already an example for other Christians there in the region and beyond. He's thanking God that the pattern of faith in the Thessalonians, it's having an influence in their region. So don't overlook the power of example in the life of the church. No Christian example is perfect. It's not. We're living this side of, of heaven. And oftentimes we must be examples of humble repentance. Isn't that right, parents? When's the last time we had to ask forgiveness of our kids and tell them, Daddy was wrong. I sinned against you. We'll mess up. They see our sin more than anyone else does outside of our home. But it's an example to be humbly repentant. Don't overlook the power of an example. You should pray and ask God, strengthen the examples in this church, strengthen the example in my life that I might be an encouragement to others. And then what I want to say as a church, you know, what it means to grow and discipling in our church, I, I think it's this simple. Invite others in to your exemplary life. I heard a pastor friend say that recently. I think it's a wonderful definition of what it means to invest in others. Invite others in to your exemplary life. We do that through hospitality, having meals. You can do that by studying a book of the Bible, another member of this church, getting together to discuss the sermons, getting a book on the book table downstairs and discussing that book, going to an equipping hour class with someone in this church saying, let's, let's learn together about stewardship and get together once every two weeks for lunch to talk about what we're learning. Invite others into your exemplary life. And I want to say to you, you know, if, if you're a member of our church and someone has invited you in, initiate back. If someone's invited you in to hospitality, initiate back to them. Don't let it be where they invite you in, they read a book with you, and they don't hear from you for six months. That's not going to help you grow as a Christian. So think about how you can get yourself around beneficial examples of godliness in this local church. So don't just wait for people to initiate to you. Initiate out. Don't just, when someone initiates to you, wait and do nothing. Think about how you can position yourself to grow. And I'm convinced that if we give ourselves more to that, the examples I already see in this local church will be strengthened and will continue to grow. We find another way that their example was seen in verse 8. They were active in evangelism. So first they were joyful in suffering, but also they were active in evangelism. They had been evangelized and they became evangelistic. They received the good news of Jesus and now the good news of Jesus was going out from them. We see in verse 8 that we see the word of the Lord sounded forth from you. And then later, their faith in God has gone forth. That word forth, it points forward, outward. They were an example of an outward-looking people. In other words, what's happening in here? The faith, the joy in God and what He's done in Jesus, it makes its way outward as we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to those around us. They were an example of an outward-looking people. Now, certainly they lived exemplary lives, but we also see they were verbally proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of the Lord. You see, a Christian witness involves both verbal proclamation of the gospel, calling people to repent 
and believe in Jesus. And it also involves an exemplary life that commends this gospel to those around us. And this wasn't merely the witness of a handful of individuals in the church. Paul is commending the witness of the whole church. Far too often evangelism is seen as, hey, there's like four or five people who, man, they're gifted, they're good at evangelism, they're, they're extroverts, they're good at talking to people. That's a wrong way to view a Christian witness. And for most of us, including myself, evangelism is not a spiritual gift. It's a practice of faithfulness. It's an effort. It's a discipline. It's something we work with to encourage one another in. It's something we pray for. God, if you're not sharing the gospel, just pray this. Pray it right now, silently. God, give me opportunities to share the gospel this week, I ask. Help me to be alert and ready for those around me, family members, friends, neighbors, coworkers who need to hear the gospel. Give me the courage. I've found often if I'm not sharing the gospel, it's also connected to I'm not praying. So step one, pray. Step two, seek to share the gospel. This was the whole church active in evangelism. At the beginning of verse 8, we see their evangelism was sounding forth throughout the immediate region in Macedonia and Achaia. That, that phrase sounding forth, kind of like rolling thunder, sounding, re- reverberating, an image there of the Word of God about Jesus Christ rolling throughout a region. Then at the end of verse 8, we see their witness of faith had gone forth everywhere, which is using a hyperbole there to state their witness. It spread far beyond their own region. And notice how the Apostle Paul sums this thought up at the end of verse 8, so that we need not say anything. This church has been so faithful to spread the gospel that the Apostle Paul, a missionary, is saying, we're not going to have to start from scratch in this region. The gospel has gone out from you. You've been faithful witnesses. They were already doing the work of evangelism. You see, a central part of the exercise of our faith as a local church is that we would be active in evangelism, seeking to send the word of the gospel outward. If we are a forward-looking people, we must be those who seek to advance the gospel forward through verbal proclamation. Now, I told you at the members' meeting this past Sunday night, the reason I chose 1 Thessalonians is because I think it's really relevant to our church. I think our church, by God's grace, is a faithful church that is maturing and growing, and there's a foundation to build on. That's what he's, he's commending the Thessalonians for their foundation. I think we have a good foundation of evangelism here in our church, and I think we have a foundation we should seek to build on. I'm encouraged that on Sunday nights, when I regularly do this, I open up the microphone to say, if you've recently shared the gospel and you want us to pray for that individual, raise your hand. I haven't had a Sunday where you all ghost me on that. Every Sunday, there's someone, there's usually two or three that want to come up. I've shared the gospel recently. What an encouragement that is. I'm thankful for the coordinated efforts of members here in the food pantry who are committed to getting the gospel out through that ministry. That that's my question dinner that's coming up, Lord willing, next month. Members who spread the gospel on campus at UNC Charlotte and try to get the word of God out there on campus. I'm thankful for members who gather to pray for evangelism and conversion through the ministry of our church. For the missions prayer group that meets regularly to meet to pray for missionaries and the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. To the mission reading group that Pastor Jonathan Morgan led to help equip our members in considering missions and evangelism. I'm encouraged by the efforts of this church to plant Bangkok City Baptist Church in Bangkok, Thailand. To help plant a church in Ankara, Turkey that some members plan to visit there in just a little over a month. 
I'm excited and encouraged that you all gave over $20,000 last month to our Christmas missions offering. $20,000 given by this church for the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. I praise God for that. And I say, Oakhurst Baptist Church, let's keep up the good work. Let's be those who seek to build on that foundation. Let's ask the Lord to strengthen our witness of the gospel. Let's be those who seek to share the gospel more this year than we did last year. It's a good effort to give ourselves to. Well, a final way Paul highlights that their example of genuine faith is seen is there in verse nine, verses 9 and 10, they were waiting for the return of Jesus. They were waiting for the return of Jesus. The Thessalonian example of faith was well known. They heard the gospel from Paul. Many were saved. And you read in verses 9 and 10 this pattern in the Christian life. Turn, serve, wait. You become a Christian by turning, repenting of your sin. God saves you through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. He makes you a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is seen through you obeying God's Word and living and loving more like Jesus. And there's a posture of of waiting. I love this picture here. We, We see turning from idols. So the Thessalonians lived in a city there that was full of idol worship. Their church was mainly made up of Greeks who had turned away from serving idols, which are false gods in contrast to the one true God. Those idols are dead. They're substitutes for the one true God that are fake. Idol worship is still a problem today. You can take a left out of our parking lot or out of the street here, go down the street just a half a mile, and you will see a Buddhist temple that is full of idols, images, carved images that people worship that are dead. They need to hear about the one true God from us in Jesus Christ, what God has done. In our context, certainly we have false religions. Buddhist temples are filled with idols. Those are false gods. They're not living. They're, they're dead. Other religions, Islam worships a false god. Muhammad did not rise from the dead like Jesus did. Jesus proved he is the only way to God. He is the son of God. So other religions certainly represent idol worship. And certainly idols in our context can be expanded to be anything that we put our trust and hope in. Money, possessions, a successful career, relationships, things you're worshiping, serving, trying to give your life to can become a type of idol. The Thessalonians turned from those idols. They repented to serve the living and true God. The witness of the Bible is clear throughout Old and New Testament. There's only one God. There are false gods or other religions. There's only one true God. In the next verse, verse 10, this God is identified as the God whose Son is Jesus, the one whom God raised from the dead. The only true God is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The only way to be delivered from the wrath that is to come, meaning God's holy judgment for sin is not from idols. You will not be delivered from the wrath that has come by idols. Your success in this life, your possessions in this life will not save you from what is to come in God's judgment for sin. The only way to be saved from God's holy sin is to turn away from idols, to repent of your sin against God, and to put your faith in Jesus Christ for forgiveness. He's a holy God who will judge sin. He is right to do that, but He is gracious and merciful and will forgive anyone who would turn and put their faith in Jesus Christ. 
He laid his life down on the cross to die and pay for sin that you'd be forgiven. He rose from the dead on the third day and new life will be given to you if you would turn in Jesus Christ and trust in Jesus Christ and that is something you can do today. For those who put their faith in Christ, we wait for Jesus. We wait. Waiting doesn't mean sitting idle. Look at that picture. Serve and wait. It's the posture of the Christian life. We turn by God's grace from idols. We presently serve the living God. We serve and we wait. We evangelize and we wait. We pray and we wait. We meet for worship on Sundays and we wait. We go out on Monday, Lord willing, to obey God, to seek to be a witness of the Christian faith, and we wait and we look to the return of Jesus. We'll be able to look at this a lot in the book of Thessalonians because every chapter in the book of 1 Thessalonians ends with the return of Jesus Christ. You and I, we need that reminder. We need to be strengthened in our hope. Brother and sister in Christ, have you lost sight of the return of Jesus? Is the return of Jesus part of your gospel? It's part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. His death, His resurrection, His ascension, the return is part of the good news of Jesus Christ. It needs to be a part of the gospel that we rejoice in daily. May we serve and may we wait Maybe we look forward to that day when Jesus, the Son of God, returns to finally deliver His people. That day we will be saved from His final judgment. At the end of time, we will be gathered up as people to live with God forever. So we see in Revelation 21, living on the new earth, the new heavens there. And until that day, brother and sister in the Lord, we serve the living God. By His grace, we will grow in faith and love and hope By His grace, we can find joy in affliction and suffering. By His grace, may we give ourselves to actively proclaiming the gospel, sending this message to the ends of the earth. May we serve and wait because He is worth it. He is worthy. In Jesus Christ, our hope is found until He returns or calls us home. May we be reminded here in the power of Christ we stand. Let's bow and pray. Father in heaven, we are in people who are in need of being strengthened in our faith, strengthened in hope. And we pray that even as we heard your word today, by the power of your spirit, you'd work in us. And Lord, we pray for, for more Sundays that if uh, the Lord tarries and returning, you were tarrying returning your son Jesus, that we would give ourselves to hearing your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you'd bring fruit in our lives to lead us to deeper worship and service and obedience to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.